separates us from our God, from our Creator. It makes us God's enemy. It makes us the objects of His wrath. It has a price, and that price is death. Paul wrote to the Romans at 6.23, For the wages of sin is death. Apart from believing in Christ, our eternal prospects are horrific. Friends, this is more than bad news. This is horrific, horrible. I can't quantify it and explain it any better. It's horrible, horrible news. In John chapter 3, we are told, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And further at John 3.36, it's written, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It's not that the wrath of God will come. It is here already. The disobedient one, the rebellious one, the sinner, is already in the crosshairs of God's wrath. And unless something is done to deal with this problem, this wrath will remain, sadly, horrifically, forever. Death, condemnation, and wrath. Our sin is not free of consequences. The result of our sin is horrific. This is horrible news. But we don't seem to talk much about this information in our culture anymore. Certainly not the way that preachers have pressed this point so well in the past, and certainly not as passionately and compellingly. You know, most of you know, that I love history, and I've recently engaged in some pleasure reading of sermons of evangelists of our past, like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and Charles Haddon Spurgeon, D.L. Moody and Billy Sunday. If nothing else can be said of those folks, they didn't mince words. They were very willing and able to tell their listeners how dire a circumstance they were in apart from Christ. And they did it in a very artful and persuasive way. Just listen to the words of Jonathan Edwards from his famous 1741 sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. You know, these passages that I'm going to read, I really wish I could have been there to hear. But the written word and hopefully the spoken word will convey some small part of how great it was. Jonathan Edwards preached, Yea, there is nothing else that is to be given as a reason why you do not this very moment drop down into hell. O oh, sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit, full of the fire of wrath, that you are held over in the hand of that God whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. Or in another part of that sermon he wrote, Your wickedness makes you as it were heavy as lead and to tend downwards with great weight and pressure towards hell. And if God should let you go, you would immediately sink and swiftly descend and plunge into the bottomless gulf and your healthy constitution and your own care and prudence and best contrivance and all your righteousness would have no more influence to uphold you and keep you out of hell than a spider's web would have to stop a falling rock. 
or consider finally the famously extracting, extracted phrase uh, quote from this sermon. The bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. My understanding of that sermon preached in Enfield in 1741, people were wailing and crying, what must I do to be saved? It was just nothing like you are. But uh, (laughs) it it was one wild place when he was preaching this sermon. Or consider the the famous evangelist George Whitfield. George Whitfield was from England. He came to the colonies seven times between 1740 and 1770. And it is said that he spoke up and down the 13 colonies to nearly three-quarters of the then four million people of the 13 colonies. And it is said of George Whitfield that he invested into these people with such message that it was the spirit of what he brought to these people, the gospel, that caused the colonists to fight the Revolutionary War and win the Revolutionary War and deliver to us a government, a government that has preserved liberty. And it's also been a Judeo-Christian government. He was known as a great orator who, by God's blessing, had a booming, clear voice. He could speak to 20,000 people without a microphone. And he was heard clearly by them And he went up and down speaking. Not only was his voice loud, he didn't mince words. In one recorded sermon he preached, Think, I beseech you by the mercies of God in Christ Jesus. Think with yourselves how racking, how unsupportable the never-dying worm of self-condemning conscience will hereafter be to you. Think how impossible it will be for you to dwell with everlasting burnings. Consider, I beseech you, consider how you will rave and curse that fatal stupidity which made you believe anything less than true faith in Jesus Christ. In the late 1880s and early 1900s, retired professional baseball player Billy Sunday reached millions with the gospel, delivered in a very dramatic, folksy energetic style and he is one that I really wish I could have seen I, I've seen pictures of him and all kinds of poses up at the pulpit and, and uh, very dramatic uh, I enjoyed reviewing just the words of his sermons um, in his plain talking way he described the horrible place that sinners were in apart from Christ in one sermon he said the devil has got some of you so close to hell that you can smell the fumes He's no loafer. He's been working for 6,000 years and he was never laid up with appendicitis nor tonsillitis nor the grip. Or in another sermon he said, hell must be an awful place. The fact that God went to the trouble he did to send Jesus Christ to this earth and to work out his great plan of redemption proves that it must be an awful place. I think that this should give us a new vision. Or consider the the famed preacher, the Reverend Charles Haddon Spurgeon, England's preeminent preacher of the late 1800s. In 1862, he preached a famous sermon entitled A Sinner's End, wherein he forcefully stated, A spider's web is a strong cable, 
when compared with the thread on which moral life depends. We have told you a thousand times till the saying has become so trite that you smile when we repeat it. Life is frail, and yet you live, O men, as though your bones were brass and your flesh were adamant and your lives like the years of the eternal God. As breaks the dream of the sleeper, as flies the cloud before the wind, as melts the foam from the breaker, as dies the media from the sky, so suddenly shall the sinner's joys pass forever from him. And who shall measure the greatness of his amazement? Remember, O sons of men, how terrible is the end of the ungodly. Friends, I I believe that pastors in churches these days have been lax in emphasizing how dire is a sinner's condition apart from Christ. And that bad news is ironically about the bad news. We don't often hear hell discussed in our churches, and we rarely at that hear hell described so ominently and imminently as the preachers of times past. And outside of the church, hell is a joke, and people flippantly tell others to go there. Friends, I would tell you, hell is not a joke. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. This death involves an eternal separation from God in a place of actual torment and misery. Have you ever had your fingers slammed in a door? The pain is excruciating, but it eventually goes away. And right now, it's just a memory. But the pain and torment of hell is eternal. Let me share with you a definition of eternal that was once shared with me. A bird flies to the top of Mount Everest to sharpen his beak. Mount Everest is a rock 29,029 feet above sea level. And the bird lands on the top, strokes his beak one way and another way, and flies off. And a billion years later, he comes and he does the same thing and flies off. And a billion years and a billion years, and a billion years, and a billion years. When Mount Everest is worn flat by the bird's beak, less than one second would elapse in eternity. In the finiteness of our lives, we cannot fathom infinity. Being in hell for one moment would be sheer horrible torment, but being there for eternity is indescribable. But that is what we deserve because that is what we have earned by our rebellion and sin. This is horrible, 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 horrible. Did I say horrible? News. It's worse than bad news. But don't despair because we have the gospel. This is what makes the gospel so great. We have good news. I see a lot of wonderful shaking heads. From the prospect of this horrible eternity, we need help and we need a savior And God's solution is Jesus Christ. He is our Savior. Though we are rebellious and unlovely, amazingly, God still, amazingly, God still loves us. Paul wrote to the Romans 5.8, But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In John 3.16, we're further reminded of God's loving solution for us for For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Christ is our savior, the one who saves us. He is our redeemer, the one who has bought us back. He is our ransomer, the one who is there to pay our price when we couldn't pay. He is the reconciler between us and our creator. 
He is the substitute who went to the cross and died and paid for our sin in our place. God being just and merciful and gracious all at the same time did all of this miracle at the cross in Christ. He saved us through Christ and he kept his integrity by still staying just and merciful and gracious all at the same time. How could that be? Think of that. If just is getting what you deserve and if mercy is not getting what you deserve and if grace is getting more than you deserve, how could God be all of those things at once? Well, let me explain by giving you a picture of a 21st century situation in my world that I've experienced over 40 years. With your mind's eye, go to an imaginary courtroom. And there on the bench is the judge. And the judge has just finished sentencing the defendant down below to life imprisonment, a just penalty for what he had done. And then in an amazing, unsuspected move, the judge stands up and takes off the robe and takes off his watch and pulls out his wallet. And he walks down to the floor and stands next to the defendant. And he orders the court officer to take the cuffs off the defendant. While that's happening, he gives the watch and the wallet to the defendant, and he orders the court officer to put the cuffs on him and take him out to go to jail to serve the life sentence. The court officer obeys, and he takes the cuffs off, and he walks the judge out, and the courtroom is aghast, rightly so. Now the defendant has a choice. Does he run after the judge and say, Your Honor, Your Honor, it's really my fault. Let me come with you and serve the penalty with you. Or does he act in faith, believing that the penalty has been paid in full, that he has received mercy, and better yet, that he has been blessed by the judge with provisions to go on in life, grace. This is the unlikely but amazing interplay of justice, mercy, and grace. And by God's amazing power, it all happened at the cross. It all happened at once nearly 2,000 years ago when God came down out of heaven in the person of Jesus Christ and went to the cross in our place. It is all made possible because of God's amazing love for us. This is all of God. This is the simplicity and wonder of the gospel. God doesn't need any help doesn't need any help at all to achieve our salvation. Frankly, it's an insult for us to think that we can do anything to help God solve our eternal problem. It is all of God. It is a gift. In my weird courtroom example, it would be weirder yet for the defendant to leave the courtroom as a free man by faith, but then to go back to the jail periodically to go sit in the, the visitor's room to help the judge do time doesn't work that way. Paul wrote to the Ephesians as Wally read, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no man will boast. Paul wrote in another place in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Don't lose sight of the fact that the gospel, the good news, involves a gift. From a legal point, I can tell you that a gift is very special. It involves three component parts. It involves a donative intent, a transfer, and a receipt. If you don't have all three, you don't have a completed gift. 
We can visualize this process by considering our culture's practice at Christmas time. If I wanted to give you a gift, I would go to the store, I would pay for the gift in full, I would wrap it, I would put your name on it, I would put it under the tree. At the appropriate time, you would take that gift out, okay, and bring it to yourself. But before that, there was donative intent and there was transfer, but there was not yet receipt. So that gift was not yet yours. And so you had to pick that gift up, assume it for yourself, and receive it. Then it's a completed gift. At this point, um, I would tell you that this gift, if you get the picture, is like the gift of eternal life that Jesus Christ gives us. It's the gift that he purchased for us on the cross. Until you receive that fully paid for gift by faith, it's not yours. You must turn to Christ in faith and believe this good news that he died in your place and that he offers this free gift to you, this gift of eternal life, but you must receive it. The Apostle John wrote about Christ and said, He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The gospel, the good news, is that though a sinner apart from Christ is hellbound, God has solved this horrible problem through Christ. When we could not save ourselves, Christ ransomed us, and he offers this free gift of eternal life if we would merely receive it by faith. If we do, God promises that we will be changed and he will do the work of conversion. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We are born again. We are changed from death to life. We are brought out of darkness into light. We are no longer enemies of God. We are his children. Moments before we were hell-bound, now we are heaven-bound. We are given his spirit, and we are invited into an eternal relationship with the creator God. Thank God for this conversion. Thank God for this good news. I believe the famous preacher George Whitfield would tell you at this point what he shared from his heart over 250 years ago to his listeners. He said this, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. If you are damned for lack of conversion, remember that you are not damned for lack of warning. Thousands have had the gospel preached to them, but you have heard. If there is a deeper place in hell, God will order a gospel-despising church member to be put there. You will have dreadful torments. Of him to whom so much is given, much will be required. How dreadful to have a minister after minister say, Lord God, I preached, but they would not hear. Such is the responsibility, the responsibility of hearing the gospel, the good news, the greatest news that has ever been told on the face of this earth. A proper response is required. When Jesus was finishing his earthly ministry and when he had come to the point where his so-called hour had come, he wound up having to go before Governor Pontius Pilate on the way to the cross. 
And at this time, when under pressure from the chief priests and the elders and the Jewish crowd that they had stirred up, Pilate capitulated and released the criminal Barabbas. He then stood before a very agitated crowd and he had to deal with Christ. And in this very tense spot with all of the agitated Jewish people, he pronounced a question that has reverberated through the centuries. He said, then what shall I do with Jesus who was called Christ? What a question. It's a question that applies to us, not only the Jewish crowd. Our lives and our futures depend on what we do with Jesus. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is like no other man. Think of it. There is no other person in all of history who is as well known as Jesus Christ. And sadly, there's probably no other name, cursing or blessing, that's been spoken as many times as Jesus Christ. He is unique. And importantly, it must be known that with him there is no neutral ground. There is no neutral position that you can take with this Jesus Christ. He made it very clear when he said, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. With Christ, you are either in the light or you're in the dark. You are either dead or alive. You are either heaven-bound or hell-bound. It is that simple, so no person should be vacillating, even today, with what you're going to do with Jesus Christ. Pilate's words echo into our 21st century then what shall I do with Jesus, who was called the Christ? I trust most of you, if not all of you, have heard about the famous 19th century preacher evangelist D.L. Moody. He had his roots actually in Massachusetts before launching into an international evangelistic ministry that it is said he reached over one million, that traveled over one million miles and he reached more than 100 million people with the gospel. In the late 1860s, Moody served as president of the Chicago YMCA, and he was very instrumental in helping to have built the first building of the YMCA called Farwell Hall. It was in Chicago, and it was suited for the gathering of many people. Upwards to 3,000 people at one time could be seated there to hear. And Moody used that hall, Farwell Hall, to preach on Sunday nights. On October 8, 1871, Moody did, in fact, preach to a full crowd at Farwell Hall in Chicago. Coincidentally, on Pilate's words, what then shall I do with Jesus, which is called Christ? He closed his message by saying, I wish you would take this text home with you and turn it over in your minds during the week. And next Sabbath, we will come to Calvary and the cross, and we will decide what to do with Jesus of Nazareth. Following the sermon, Ira Sankey, who was his song leader, led in a closing hymn. But before they could finish the hymn, all manner and fashion of commotion and disruption broke out outside. What was it? The Chicago fire. The Chicago fire had just started and people were fleeing for their lives. That was Sunday night. The fire didn't stop until Wednesday. And everything that Moody had in Chicago was destroyed. On the Chicago Fire's 22nd anniversary in 1893, Moody spoke reflectively to a gathering. And he said, I have never seen that congregation since, and I never will meet those people again until I meet them in another world. But I want to tell you one lesson I learned that night, which I have never forgotten, and that is when I preach to press Christ upon the people then and there, 
and to try to bring them to a decision on the spot. I have asked God many times to forgive me for telling people that night to take a week to think it over. Those were Moody's words. Now, though I believe that God calls his people to himself at his time, that's what we believe in this church, and that the Holy Spirit ultimately convicts us of our sinfulness and rebellion and our need of Jesus Christ, I do take to heart D.L. Moody's experience with the great Chicago fire. When one hears the good news of Jesus Christ, that good news needs to be immediately processed. It can't be left alone. To not accept it is to reject it. I will tell you right now, I cannot force you, despite my hardest efforts, for you to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I'd love that to happen, but I will not do that. And I will not tell you today or force you today to turn and repent and follow Jesus Christ for the rest of your life. I can't force you and I won't. That's God's job, I guess. But I will do what Paul attempted to do to the Corinthians when he wrote to them in the second letter and he said, I beseech you, I implore you to be reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus. To help you grapple with this gospel information, I want to take you back to 1977 when I was starting my second year of law school in Fort Lauderdale. And I was arranging my weekly schedule by going to Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church. And in, Feb in September of 1977, in a new members class on a Sunday night, Dr. D. James Kennedy asked all of us in the class, there were about 30 of us, two questions. They revealed to me where I stood with Christ. And I want to ask you those two questions now. And I would ask you in your heart, in your head, in your silence between you and God, to answer these questions as best you can. The first question is, have you come to the place in your spiritual life where you know for certain that if you were to die right now, you would go to heaven? Do you know for certain? The second question is, if you did die and you stood before God and he said to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you tell him? First of all, I do know for certain that when I die, I'm going to heaven. And that we can know for certain that when we die, we're going to go to heaven. In John 20:30, it's written, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And further in John, uh, 1 John 5:11, And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Did you ever wonder why the Bible was written? So that we can know that we have eternal life. By God's grace, I know for certain that when I die... I will go to heaven, and you can know that too. I hope you have full assurance, but I bet there are some of you who aren't sure. I know that I wasn't when I was asked those questions 40-something years ago. So let's consider quickly the second question. What would you tell God if you stood before him and he asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? If you were like me, you might have 
unconfidently begun to list a lot of religious things. I go, I've been to church, I've prayed, I've given, I've read the Bible, I've tried to be good to my fellow men, I've tried to follow the golden rule, I really haven't killed anyone or done any heinous crime. But you know what? Those are all useless, futile efforts to try to earn any of heaven or any of eternal life or a restored relationship with God. These things simply cannot be earned. Paul wrote to the Ephesians, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one should boast. The good news gospel, the good news message, distinguishes Christianity from all other religions and faith. And Pastor Gary has just been a great mentor to me on this. This is your stuff I incorporated. i got to give you a footnote. There are two simple words that set Christianity apart from everything else, do and done. If you believe that you have to do many things to earn God's favor, then you are misguided and you are not a partaker of the good news gospel. All religions other than Christianity have their rules and regulations and practices for trying to get close to God. All things to do. But Christianity is so wonderfully different. As for the payment of sins, the purchasing of eternal life, Christ has done it all. Do you hear me? He has done it all. And there's nothing for us to do. Salvation is the gift of God through Christ. We don't have to pay for a gift. And I think this is poignant. We don't have to pay for a gift, but Scripture refers to it as a gift over and over. We don't have to pay for a gift. If there is something for us to do, then it's payment and it's a purchase. It's not a gift. But salvation is continually referred to in the Scripture as a gift. That's good news. That's the gospel. Some of you perhaps are trying to make this more complicated than it really is. It is simple. It's a gift. It's paid for by the shed blood of Christ. That is the only currency that Christ accepts. He doesn't accept our good works. There's nothing more that we can add to it. God doesn't need any help figuring out how to draw us back to himself. His solution is Jesus Christ. You need to quit trusting in your valueless currency and your feeble, worthless attempts to gain God's favor. There is nothing you can do. It is all done by Christ. Do you get it? That's the good news. I implore you to understand this good news. I cannot present it to you any clearer. Thank you for allowing me to be in your presence as an evangelist today. May God bless you as you do to do your best to respond in the most eternally beneficial way. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that it is all of you, by your love, by your grace, that you've delivered to us this gospel. And I pray that if there are some in this room who have not accepted the free gift of eternal life that you've paid for and offered that they would strongly consider and do that today. I pray, Lord, that we as a church, those who have been changed and made new creatures in Christ, the old passed away, the old, the, the new has come, that we would leave this building energized to share this great gospel message with the world, that you would be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.